Howdy, friends. This is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 63 of the podcast, the only podcast about popes where you'll find non-boring stories about the popes and a reminder that all of the world's problems have happened plenty of times before. Our first episode of 2021 is a very special one indeed. Uh, This week, we're joined by J.D. Flynn and Ed Condon, co-founders of The Pillar, the brand new Catholic media project focused on smart, faithful, and serious journalism from committed and informed Catholics who love the church, which you can find and sign up for at PillarCatholic.com. I got that right, right? Yeah, you nailed it. Catholic.com, nice. Uh, So J.D. and Ed are, are by my estimation at least, two of the finest Catholic journalists around. I would imagine that I'm joined by lots of people given the popularity of this new project so far. Uh, And would you know it, I hear they're good people too. So, you know, both J.D. and Ed are uh, canon lawyers by trade, respectively the former editor-in-chief and former D.C. editor over at Catholic News Agency. And they have graciously agreed to join us today for, like I said, the podcast first episode of 2021. So J.D. and Ed, welcome. Thanks for having us. This is awesome. Yeah. How did I do? Does that, did, did you want to add anything to the, um, here? Well, that's, that's you really can. one of the more flattering introductions I've ever had. Wow. I know. I really, I, I hardly even recognize those guys that you just <laughs> described. Was it the, uh, was it the good people part or right. was that was a big of part of it? Yeah. Yeah. Very few people yeah. are willing to call us that in public. So <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I yeah, like to is, say our URL as often as I can. So www.pillarcatholic.com just so that it's planted in people's minds. So that would be the only thing that I would add is saying www.pillarcatholic.com five or six right, times. Or should we uh, make fun of Luke from Catching Fox and say www. So I think he tries to say it so fast. It's www. There's three well, no. www. is like one of the the World Wide Web acrostic of www is. I mean, it's linguistically nonsensical because it's an abbreviation that is actually takes longer to say than it does to say it in full. Like it's That's more true. syllables to say www than it would to say World Wide Web. It's I've never thought of that before. Although I'm sure JD is judging you right now for using the word nonsensical. You see, I was wondering if anyone was going to pick up on that. <laughs> well done. Well done. It was a plant to see how much I actually track with you guys' content. And it's not just this is a, a word. This, the word nonsensical is a word. I, it's just one of those things that like, it feels like, um, it just feels like an imposition. Like it doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't flow. It feels like a word constructed in a laboratory out of disparate parts found on the floor instead of a word that flows when, when something like nonsense is right there for the taking. Mm-hmm. You're you're just betraying a very narrow worldview, JD. Uh, there there are entire countries where the word nonsensical is in common currency, and it sounds perfectly fine and normal and natural. I I guess I have I guess I I guess I'm just American. What what you're now realizing is how much of the constructive partnership between JD and I is basically based on the two of us annoying the heck out of each other. All yeah, that's long. exactly right. Opposites being held. The in main tension. reason why we stop working each we basically work each day until we can't talk to each other anymore, and then we call it a day. <laughs> So you've made it pretty good because we're recording in the early evening. So either you had to quit at 11 to come back right now or, <laughs> or you're doing all right. Oh, yeah, we're doing all right. Great. Well, good. Okay. So real quick before we get going, I, I mean, we already kind of referenced it, but um, I personally at least can't say enough good things about The Pillar, your new project. I know I'm. we mentioned briefly already. Here's another opportunity to mention www.pillarcatholic.com. Uh, but what is it? I mean, give us a rundown briefly of what it is, why it exists where people can find it, again, just for another opportunity. Yeah, The Pillar is a journalism project that Ed and I co-founded this month, I mean, we, we that we launched this month. And our goal with The Pillar was um, to do um, smart Catholic journalism from people who love the church for people who love the church. And um, and uh, we wanted to do that in such a way where we could kind of step back from the news cycle, not not ignoring the news cycle, paying attention to things that are happening and being able to kind of give some insight or um, an explainer or, uh, you know, an, an analysis, but to spend as much of our time as we could step back from the news cycle doing things that I think a lot of us know is, is needed and important right now. Um, investigative journalism on the things that are left unanswered by the McCarrick Report, investigative journalism on the Vatican financial scandal and, the, and all its implications, investigative journalism on, you know, other aspects. What we learned, I think, from the McCarrick scandal is that um, transparency is good for the church and that um, it is too easy for us to make assumptions that things are as they ought to be in the life of Holy Mother Church. And we know, you know, from a, we know that, that journalism can play an important role um, in the functioning of any healthy society, just by providing a mechanism of public accountability and by bringing things into the light. And we wanted to be able to focus on doing that in the life of the church. And at the same time, I mean, not just sort of um, gotcha investigative journalism, but at the same time doing deep dives when we can into into um, 
into into seeing what works, you know, to, to looking at apostolic projects and initiatives and um, and, and seeing what works in a way that it, that tries to bring some measure of objectivity to that. So I think a lot of times there's kind of like, you know, there become these sort of sacred cows in the church where it's like everybody's really enthusiastic to say that this apostolate or this project is like really on fire and doing great work. But what I'm interested in is like, how do we know? What are the metrics? Is it helping, you know, is it helping people to, um, you know, great, grow in faith in any number of ways that we can like, you know, plot out? Are they going to mass more? Are they, um, are people who are involved in X, Y, or Z more likely to stay married or to stay in the priesthood or, um, you know, to practice the faith? Are are kids in a youth group, a a youth program more likely to practice the faith 10 years later or less likely? You know, those kinds of things that we don't often bring that level of kind of like, you know, serious, um, sober and objective analytical look at um, initiatives in the life of the church, but we can. Um, So it's a lot to sort of bite off. And I think we're kind of figuring out now how how to do that one step at a time but that's our goal and our, our vision is to is to is not to waste the time of our readers but to bring them things that will add value to their own work and their own life in the church that's great add counterpoint no. <laughs> <laughs> on this if little else jd and i are more or less total agreement i mean for me i i found um over sort of the five or so years that i've been working in and around catholic reporting and journalism that very often um there there isn't the time or the space created to to ask the sometimes not obvious follow-up questions but that yield the bigger story and it's sort of the er example i give from my own experience is uh in 2016 there was this this kerfuffle that erupted where cardinal pell who was then in charge of sort of vatican financial reform tried to have an audit of the whole roman curia and then that got canceled sort of overnight by officials at the secretary of state and and that was kind of reported for a day or two as, as a as an interest story in sort of you know whether or not the vatican was going to be able to come financially transparent but for me what you know, what got me sort of into looking at that story, and I've been reporting on it for five years now, is is it didn't make legal sense, you know, that there's no way that this audit by this curial department should have been able to be canceled by this other curial department. And that didn't that didn't make sense. And when you start digging under the hood of it, it's brought us, you know, sort of years of, uh, you know, this long power struggle in the Vatican, you know, with billions of euros at stake. And, and so I think, having a place which i hope is what the pillar is and can and can become ever more so having a place where it's okay to follow the thread all the way um which which requires you know the luxury of time it requires the luxury of focus and, and to you know report out the details that for a lot of people you know reading is sort of you know part of the casual daily news cycle are going to find a little bit in the weeds but to say you know the details matter on these things that you know the details are where the story is made and it's where the next sort of big thing can be found and anticipated and hopefully you know if if not completely you know stopped from becoming a problem at least you know caught earlier which i which i think is a service that we can offer to the church i think it's part of what responsible journalism is yeah yeah i think that's beautiful i mean because gosh i mean i Again, I'm hardly alone, I think, and the re- probably the reason why it's been so popular already in just, what, the first week at the time we're recording this uh, is because people are starved for that. It's just like people being starved for good catechesis or good smells and bells liturgy in so many parts of the country, like all those types of things. Journalism as a trade just seems to be so sparse. I mean, for sure outside of the church, but I think inside of the church, it's been something that, you know, there's been like just, you know, kind of age-old voices or like the the defined camps or whatever, but to just be able to go and seek the truth uh, is something really valuable and beautiful. And so, yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate the the breakdown of that. So um, yeah, so I uh, wanted to make sure to plug the pillar, but the purposes of the show today, hopefully is to take a break from the trash heap that has been 2021 so far uh, and dive into some, some other things. So my first question for you guys uh, one of the primary reasons the podcast even exists, like I alluded to at the beginning and, and at the beginning of every episode, is to remind listeners that uh, everything going on today in the church, the world is, you know, nothing new. It's not even not, it's not even not new. It's happened dozens, if not hundreds, of times in the past in various parts of the world. So, um, how would you stack up the state of the church today? I mean, and I'll leave it open. Whether it's the, the financial scandal or something else or whatever. How would you stack up the state of the church today with what you know of of church history? I mean, does it even crack the top three? Uh, where does something like this sordid financial tale, where the Secretary of State, like I just read, I don't know, an hour or two ago that you that you released today, is is wrapped up in it himself? Like you know, the Vice Pope practically 
is wrapped up in something like that. So where does it, where does this stack up for, for context? Uh, well, I, I would say no, it doesn't, it doesn't crack the sort of top three for, you know, danger zone uh, in the history of the church, because, you know, the church has always had some form of crisis going on. You know, there's a reason why we have the sort of, you know, the aphorism that the church is always reforming places have from on the rest. Um, and, and I think it's important to remember that the church is human and divine, and the divine parts are always divine, and the human parts are always making mistakes, are always messing up. But, you know, if, if we look back at, you know, the Borgia popes, you know, no one, no one is currently being poisoned at dinner in the Vatican. <laughs> that we know um, of. No, yeah. Uh, well, exactly. I, I don't believe our, our current Holy Father has been, you know, appointing illegitimate children to be cardinals of the Roman Church. Uh, you know, we're not, we're certainly not there. And even in terms of sort of recent Vatican financial scandals, you know, you look back at the, at the sort of um, God's banker, Roberto, Cal, Roberto Calvi uh, scandal and saga of the, of the late eighties. I mean, no one's been found hanging from a bridge with, you know, masonry in his pockets yet. So, you know, I'd say it has, doesn't involve a lot of money. Is it important? Are there, you know, important issues at stake about governance and stewardship and, and accountability within church and accountability to God for what's, you know, over what's done with things that are offered for his service? Yeah, sure. But, you know, are the papal states being invaded by Garibaldi's mercenary army? No, we're not quite there. Yeah, I, I think that's right. History is really, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head when you say history is a, is a consolation, right? I mean, um, and uh, when you, when you um, were talking about this question, I was thinking about a, um, I was thinking about a, a, a little uh, section of Newman's histories that I come back to all the time. Um, when Newman says, um, uh, if there's one thing that's characteristic of Christians is to think that they've reached the end. He says, um, the whole course of Christianity from the first, when we come to examine it, is but one series of troubles and disorders. Every century is like every other, and to those who live in it, it seems worse than all times before. And he goes on and on to say, the church is ever ailing, ever lingering on in weakness. The cause of Christ seems ever in its last agony. Um, but he says, much comfort can we gain from what has been before, not to despond, not to be dismayed, not to be anxious at the troubles which encompass us. They have ever been, they ever shall be, they are our portion. And I love that, the, the, the sort of the sense of the cause of Christ um, uh, lingering on in weakness, ever ailing, ever in its last ang- uh, anxious. Um, Ever in, its, ever in its last agony is our portion. In other words, that we should expect that the ordinary course of the Christian life is crisis, and the ordinary course of the church's life is crisis. And yeah, um, there the crisis of the moment is multifaceted. Um, there is the Vatican finance crisis. There is the crisis of credibility born of the of um, of McCarrick, there, there, which is a, becoming increasingly a globalized problem. Um, there is the problem of the church um, losing. Uh, the institu- you know institutional credibility as institutions everywhere lose credibility and there's just the growing problem of uh, of secularism in a broad sense um, and uh, and so th- this moment in the church's life is is uh, is a crisis and there are probably um, good comparatives to other periods of history but for me the the, the most helpful thing is that this is um, not unlike any other century in feeling like the worst of all possible times. Yeah, that's a great answer. I I was just reading about. Um... It was the beginning of the 11th century and Jesus had been gone for a thousand years and there was some like massive comet just hurtling through the sky. And you can only imagine what people in in the year a thousand didn't, you know, know what that was. And apparently there was like this widespread panic thinking that, oh, they said a thousand years in was like Revelation, right? right? right, right. And yeah, uh, yeah, anyways, but yeah, I like that. Millennialism is a thing every time. Right, yeah, right. And here we are. Yeah, plus they didn't know if their computers were going to work. Your old listeners will get that. I mean, that was a... Y2K joke, but whatever. <laughs> right. I was like right on the cusp. I'm not, I'm not that young, I guess, but um, <laughs> yeah, anyways. No, and I love that too with um, people saying, oh, Francis is the worst Pope ever. And I'm like, do you have any idea the kind of men who have filled the, the papacy for like hundreds of years at a time? But even that, I mean, with the, uh, what you said, uh, with the financial scandal with like, I think of how complicated, I live in a pretty small diocese, Spokane in Eastern Washington, and like, and I live, go to a pretty large parish for the area. And like the parish is, can be bureaucratic at times. And the diocese can be incredibly bureaucratic at times. And I'm like, multiply that times a billion and you have the Vatican. There is no way that Pope Francis can be responsible for all of the problems that all of the, the trads, uh, you know, impute to him. Um, and, you know, I mean, anyways, that was, that was, that was the whole point. I didn't have a, a nice, uh, but I, I think a thought, unique but, challenge that we are living in right now that, uh, 
you know, feeds into this idea that we've never had it so bad, which, you know, I, I agree is totally ahistorical. Um, but what we have had is we've never had it so fast and so right. quickly that, you know, right, for yeah. the first time in history, what's happening in Rome, you can know in Spokane the same day. We've never been there before. Right. Thanks to PillarCatholic.com. That's PillarCatholic.com. <laughs> and there's a way in which um, there's a way in which not only you can know it, but you can you can hot take on it so quickly, and that has um, allowed it. You know, kind of um, false pro- being a false prophet is nothing new. Uh, you know, Ignatius when Ignatius was in Rome, you know, the early Jesuits had a, had a had a real discernment about sort of how they were going to handle um, a, a very prominent preacher who had attracted a lot of a- attention with. Um, more or less a set of um, schismatic ideas that the church had been infiltrated by various um, evildoers and, uh, and, and, you know, they, they had to respond to that. So, so the idea of like people teaching things that taking advantage of people's fear and anxiety to teach things that isn't true, you know, that's not a unique reality, but the degree to which people can do that with a huge audience of, um, of YouTube and social media and an audience that often dwarfs their bishop's audience because they have the sophistication to understand how to use technology. That's, um, it's not a new problem because uh, I suppose you could say that about the printing press, but it's uh, it's an accelerated problem. And uh, we saw how um, we saw how the printing press unchecked was itself a challenge for Christian unity. <laughs> so um, think, you know, how un- how difficult some of these technological innovations can be completely unchecked and, and when used devoid of virtue. Yeah. Where do you think this it ends? I mean, is there this like newfound uh, I won't name any names, but is there like newfound, you know, schisms of these? I mean, I guess there kind of already are these people who just say, you know, not my Pope to the way that they said, not my president to Trump or something like that. But like, where does, in your minds, where does this end? Does it require the world imploding and all of the media going away? And cause I mean, like you go say, go back to the dark ages. It wasn't any better. Right. So like, where does, where does it go? Do you think? Well, if each generation before has thought that it was the last, then each generation to come will think that it is the last. And uh, and so it goes, and so it goes, I suppose, until the Lord comes. Uh, you know, there I, are li- I would be slightly more optimistic than that. <laughs> <laughs> That's never happened before. Only slightly. No, but I, I would say that every every period of trauma in the church always is is answered, that, you know, Christ does not leave his church alone. That, you know, in the in the face of the Reformation, we had the Counter-Reformation, we had the Council of Trent. In the face of to invoke an extremely misunderstood and often misapplied and abused term nowadays online, uh, the sort of in post-Enlightenment modernism phenomenon, we got Vatican I. Um, in the wake of the Second World War and the sort of epochal change that that ushered in, we had the Second Vatican Council that, you know, every period in the life of the church uh, requires the church to um, ad- adapt not its message and not its teaching, but how it how it best speaks into the world around it, because that is all, ultimately its mission is to evangelize, to make disciples of all nations. And, you know, the Holy Spirit guards the church and inspires it to respond in ever novel ways. So, you know, sure, the next generation will definitely think that theirs is the worst of all possible worlds, but you know what? They'll be complaining about, you know, Trent two or something right. else, which will answer the current situation. I'm glad you say that because the thing, the the uh, the responses that you pointed out, um, which are responses of the Holy Spirit, were, were predominantly responses of reform. In other words, the church, the 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 hierarchical structure of the church, bringing in um, new sort of reforming responses to tendencies. The complement to reform is renewal, and every I think every period of um, of church crisis also brings with it a new kind of renewal, a new way that the Holy Spirit moves, not only sort of through the charism of uh, authority and and the teaching office of the church, but um, but but moves to um, introduce um, again not novelty of doctrine, but um, new approaches to um, spirituality or just new. Uh, sort of, uh, fla- you know, to borrow from John Paul II, sort of flowerings of of spirituality, new uh, emergences of expressions of Christian culture, which, which you know, in a certain way, perhaps we can't even envision what sort of Christian culture on online would really look like, or what the sort of forms of 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 Christian artistic expression in the digital age will look like. But to be sure, the Holy Spirit will inspire renewal now, um, just as she has, uh, just as the Holy Spirit has in other periods of ecclesial reform and ecclesial crisis. 
Yeah. I always think of the, um, I like that, the, the Chesterton quote that just popped into my head when you were, where you're talking, what did he say? The, uh, every generation is converted by the saint that contradicts it most. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So That's I wonder, right. yeah. I always wonder like, who is the Gregory the seventh of right, the, exactly. the Philip Neary of right now? They're probably in seminary. Who knows? That's in that, that's in that, Ch- the Chesterton St. Francis of Assisi biography, which is, oh, that's I right. think, which is excellent. Really good. I mm-hmm. absolutely love Philip Neri as a saint. And, and, you know, the thing that I love most about him is his, it was his personal sense of humility and his holiness and the things that he would do to keep himself humble and avoid other people taking him too seriously. And I often think that, you know, you, you hear him being invoked all the time by people who have, um, you know, a, a sort of extremely, um, I don't want to say doctrinaire, but an extremely austere vision of the church and Christian life. And I wonder how they'd feel about, you know, being confronted with the reality of a saint like Philip Neri today, who, you know, would insist on farting loudly in front of people so that they wouldn't, you know, think that he was, you know, too important, shouldn't be made an idol of, or, you know. Is that a true story? I've never heard that. That's amazing. Yeah, that he would, and he would stand on his head if he thought, you know, he would literally stand on his head in public squares if he thought, you know, people started sort of fanboying him. So you know, next time Mrs. Flynn and I are watching a TV show and I let one go, I'm just going to tell her that it's an, an imitation of St. Philip Neri and see if that appeases her. Well, if she if she's disgusted with you, then it will have achieved exactly what the saint himself. Now, I'm really curious, Matt, if that's where you thought this conversation was going to go. <laughs> well, I thought that's what we were here for. I'm certainly not complaining. Let's put it that way. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I, I, I was saying the exact same thing. So I would say, hey, you know, no. Oh, excellent. Well, that is a great spot to put a button on that first question. <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you. Uh, okay. So, yeah, we're jumping around a little bit here because um, part of this is I knew this would be good, kind of like our listeners would really appreciate. And a little bit of it was I am really just super curious to, like, hear your thoughts on these types of questions. So, um, the can allow one, maybe not so much, but the next question I had was pretty broad. It I mean, there's relatively few people nowadays who know what canon law even is, or if they do, they're like, well, that's still a thing. Like, what is it even, you know? Um, but it's, you know, it's not only super important uh, and has been for the life of the church. Uh, and I mean, it has been for the wider world for centuries. So why is why why would you say canon law is important for the average person, let alone the average Catholic? So not even just inside the church, but the average person to at least know about and understand, maybe in that historical context to you. We're both trying to decide if it's our turn to talk. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, okay. I was well. I guess the answer I I give because um, this is a question you get a lot as a canon lawyer, and it's yeah. it's often the first <laughs> question you have to rhetorically answer, ask and answer yourself, um, particularly when you're teaching canon law in a seminary, <laughs> which is you know why do you, why does canon law matter? Well, break it and find out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. but. I, I would the, the answer is you know if we, we speak of one of the one of the ways in which the church is described is the mystical body of Christ and I'd like to say that's the mystical body of Christ is a real thing but without the skeleton of canon law it's just a blob and it can't move <laughs> and it can't do any of the things that it's supposed to do it can't act in the world in which in the way in which it's called to act that canon law is is a structural articulation of doctrine of rationality of uh, discipline of all of these things that it's, it, it is really the, it, you know, if you, if you think of a beautiful icon as sort of a, a painting of the, the beauty and doctrine of the church, the skeleton x-ray is canon law, that this is the stuff underneath it that gives it all shape and holds it in place and is, you know, sort of propping it all up. And, you know, canon law, I mean, it's the thing that attracted me to studying canon law in the first place, or one of the things is, you know, it, it has the reputation of being the sort of secret rule book, but, you know, it, it's a function of law that it's always, you know, it, it needs a certain level of academic engagement with it to be able to read it properly. But, you know, it, it has that air of mystery about it. And I think it's misplaced because, first of all, it's there for everyone to read. Um, but second of all, it's so important to the daily life of the church. You know, why can Father normally only say three masses on a Sunday? Why can't he just do one every hour? The answer is canon law, because the law says so. He can only say mass three times on a Sunday if there's a need and everything with permission. But why? Well, it's actually for a spiritual reason, because priests are supposed to put all of themselves, all of their, you know, strength, all of their soul into the celebration of mass. So if you're making Father say six masses in a day, Mm -hmm. 
you're going to spiritually crush him. Mm-hmm. Also, there's a sordid, you know, again, the church is human and divine. So if that's the divine reason, the human reason is also in the days of, you know, hefty mass stipends, they didn't want father raking in too much money and basically <laughs> saying mass all day long as a right. money spinner. Right. You know, that this is, it's an articulation of this sort of duality that is the church. And, and I find that endlessly fascinating. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know what you what you said reminded me of um, of the way that John Paul II describes the the purpose of canon law in Socrates' Apology Legis. You know where he says um, he says you know there's a there's a there's a way. This is what John Paul II says as he's promulgating the 1983 Code of Canon Law, and he says there's a way in which we you might think that canon law like or legalism is sort of taking the place of faith or grace or charisms in the life of the church. And, you know, you might think that there's a way of being overly legalistic that's problematic, but he says the purpose of canon law, and I love this, I think about this all the time, is to create such an order in the ecclesial society that while assigning the primacy to faith, grace, and the charisms, it at the same time renders easier their organic development in the life, both of the ecclesial society and of the individual persons who belong to it. Uh, he's expressing something really rich there because he's saying that law, the structure that law gives us, the the um, the, predi- the stability and predictability and wisdom that law gives us, especially law, which is fundamentally applied theology, as you say, Ed, um, that that orders our life in such a way that um, the Lord can um, move all the more easily in an, in an organic way or that we're not hindering the movement of the Lord um, both in the, in terms of the church itself, but also in ourselves, that in a certain way the law is oriented towards um, our own salvation, uh, in, in the sense of um, forming in us the habits which are perf- which are perfected into virtue, and forming in us the habits which make us more docile to the to the movement of providence in our own lives. And so, yeah, I mean, um, canon laws is um, uh, every society needs sort of an internal disciplinary. A set of norms, but when those set of norms are drawn from the principles of the gospel, then you have something that um, can help you to become a saint and can help you to live in a Christian society, which I think we all want. Yeah, and I mean, what you say about order and, you know, sort of a right ordering of things, I think is it's vital to understand what canon law is. I mean, canon law yeah. is, in a sense, a tautology. It means basically rule law. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the origin of the word canon is in the Greek, which means basically a rule, not as in a follow the rule but a rule isn't like a ruler like the thing that guides you and makes it straight a, a, a rod actually a, sta- a standard for exactly. measuring depths and other things yeah mm-hmm. yeah and you know aquinas talks about um you know sort of asks the rhetorical question well is there law in heaven and he answers of course there is because heaven is ordered and mm-hmm. you know the the following of proper order is effectively the functioning of law it's not there to discipline it's not there to you know correct primarily it can serve those functions if you need it but you know it's it's like uh, traffic lights, you know, that's, that's a function of law. It's not there to discipline someone or stop you from doing a bad thing, or even out of presumption that people need to be told what to do, but just a society with order is one that functions better that, you know, going back to what you were saying, JD, about, um, you know, the flowering and fruits of the Holy Spirit and everything in JP2 and soccer disciplinary legis that, you know, if you if your goal is to cultivate fruit, where does it, where, you know, you have to prune the garden, you have to have an ordered garden right. An ordered orchard will yield much more fruit than just a right. tangled mess. That's going to be full right. of weeds. And I think everybody, you know, if we, if the church is our mother, we can think about what the difference between being in a home where the parents know that their parents and um, and being at home where the parents are afraid to be parents, or where the parents think that their job is to be friends with the kids, or something mm-hmm. like that, there's a there's a, a tremendous freedom from being in a home where the parents can say, "We know what we're about," and um, and because we know what we're about, we know how we live on a day to day basis, and the way that we live on a day to day basis is not reactive to the kids or the our circumstances, but um, is is a response to what we're made for and what the mission and identity of our family is, and and that you know it plays out in, in little things. But it plays out in but but because it plays out in a hundred little things, it's so much easier when a big thing happens to know exactly what should be done. And I think that's the freedom the law gives us in the life of the church too. Right. Yeah, that's beautiful. The image I didn't plan on quoting Chesterton more than once, uh, or actually even <laughs> once, but um, but he has that image of the like the kids playing on top of a cliff, and then like when there's not a fence around the outside, they just huddle in the middle because they're scared. And then when there's a fence around the outside, they go right up to the edge to get the ball or whatever. But, um, but that's beautiful. Yeah. So, I mean, it, practically speaking, um, yeah. And I'm curious about this too, because I know uh, mostly, but so in diocese, you'll find obviously judicial vicar who's, you know, the candler for the diocese or whatever. But I know that like in annulment cases, there's, um, you know, a lot of times candler reviews the case, but like where, 
practically speaking, would Joe Pew sitting Catholic uh, encounter canon lawyers? Like, why are you, you know, what, what would, what do you do as a canon lawyer when you're not a, uh, uh, running PillarCatholic.com, PillarCatholic.com. First of all, I'm, you're, this is not what you asked, but I thought you might. Um, for people who are sort of interested in canon law or think that Ed and I have a funny shtick or whatever, um, I I really think that canon law is, uh, for a layperson, an extraordinary way to serve the church. That, that is an extraordinary privilege to serve the church as a canon lawyer, and especially to be educated and to be formed as a canon lawyer, because being formed in the law gives you a way of um, looking at the world and, uh, and and understanding things and making judgments that um, that is uh, that is freeing in precisely some of those ways that we described. Um, and also, the church always just has need of canon lawyers, and so there's always an opportunity to like make a living uh, in, in canon law as well. Um, what most canon lawyers do, especially most lay canon lawyers, most lay canon lawyers work um, in, in some way in a dios- in, in a connection to a diocesan tribunal in, in the process, largely the process of declarations of nullity of marriage cases, annulments, as it were. Um, and that's just because that's where the lion's share sort of, of the work is. But canon lawyers also work in diocesan administration, which is how I spent most of my first first act um, in a career, which was working um, working in diocesan administration, the Archdiocese of Denver and the Diocese of Lincoln, uh, and then consulting for other dioceses. Canon lawyers work with religious institutes. Um, canon lawyers work in the fi- financial administration of the church, which is something that Ed and I have done a little bit too. And then um, some canon lawyers work in the church's penal system. And so um, a lot of, uh, uh, some of my experience in diocesan administration is in the is in penal matters that impact diocesan priests. And, um, and Ed, as a canon lawyer, had kind of a specialty as a sort of defense lawyer. So a lot of Ed's work is in sort of penal matters for guy, for priests who are accused of misconduct in one way or another. And, you know, guilty or not, um, it's true, I think, that everyone deserves a defense, a vigorous defense. Um, in fact, in a certain way, especially the guilty um, uh, ought to have a vigorous defense to ensure the protection of rights. And uh, and it was kind of a unique canonical role that you filled at, especially for a layperson, but you spent a lot of your time doing that defense work. I did, yeah. Um, it, and it offered a unique insight into, you know, you say, uh, you know what? What is a what is it? When do you was it a lay person encounter canon law or canon lawyers? For me, as a lay canon lawyer, um, having this sort of you know traveling speciality in in handling um, abuse cases as often as not on the defensive side of the ball, uh, it gave me a very eye opening uh, glimpse into how justice is thought about, talked about, and most importantly lived and practiced uh, in the church at all levels. You know from sort of, you know, first steps in a parish to the level of the diocese, to the level of the Vatican. Uh, and it was eye-opening in a lot of cases that, you know, to see that justice uh, justice is something we can't take for granted anywhere, that it's it's a path we have to walk consciously and conscientiously. And, you know, I, I think we, we've seen in the church um, following decades of scandal around uh, the issue of clerical abuse, for example, we've seen also that there's been an attempt to um, to correct this. And in some places it's led to almost an overcorrection that, you know, priests are now in many places treated as guilty on, you know, immediate accusation. And, you know, that ain't great either. And that serving justice means serving everyone, that justice is a service to the common good and to the body of the church as a whole. So, you know, where does a, where does an ordinary Joe Catholic in the pews encounter canon law? Anywhere he encounters the church as a society, you know, anything that touches Catholic schools, Catholic hospitals, you know, the structure of the diocese, the structure of his parish, it's all canon law that, you know, we are a society of laws and a society of therefore rights that, you know, this is something Pope Benedict said is, you know, a society without laws becomes very quickly a society without rights. And he said this to finish the quote, <laughs> encouraging um, seminarians at the time to to study and, as he put it, dare I say, learn to love canon law. And I think <laughs> this is something that, you know, can be true for everyone. It, anyone can love canon law. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I mean, for, uh, I mean, uh, an indication of why that's important. I mean, look at the 70s, 80s, and in large part, like 90s and 2000s, right, where like canon law wasn't, it was shirked in all of the, the trappings of traditional Catholicism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, were just pushed to the side, then anarchy literally reigned, and then everybody we left. Think, we we think it's still it. I mean, we think canon law is still shirked more than it should be in the sense that the answers to the crisis of the of the of the twenty eighteen sexual the answers to to preventing the twenty eighteen sexual abuse crisis are all right there in the Codex Juris Canonici, and sort of the answers to moving forward on the sexual abuse crisis are all right there in the Codex Juris Canonici. So um, it, there's so there have been there has been so much 
navel gazing about what the church in the, in the last two years about what the church sort of ought to do to um, reform itself with regard to some of these issues. And, uh, and uh, it's all right there in book six, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, so canon law is still, I think we still need to get, I still, I still think we can benefit from a more serious and more rigorous consideration of, of what the law is actually, how the law is actually instructing and trying to shape the life of the church. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an unfortunately um, institutional response that the instinct is always to try and reinvent the real wheel mm-hmm. rather than try and drive the car you already have. Yeah. Well, the, and is the, the new wheel like the, uh, the P is it called, does it have PR printed on the side as opposed to like, <laughs> sorry, is that too forward? <laughs> Not at all. No, but I mean, we've seen a lot of, um, a lot of legislation come out of the Vatican on, you know, geared specifically at answering the abuse crisis of the last several years and, you know, not just under Pope Francis, but under Pope Benedict and under JP two. And, you know, some of them have had very good, very powerful, uh, very impactful reforms. But, you know, again, like JD said, there's very little in there other than some of the things which sort of define terms and redefine classes of behavior under existing legal language. Absent that it's like, you know, everything he needs in the code has been Mm -hmm. since 1917. It's, you know, it's all there, man. Yeah, that's beautiful. Okay, perfect. Well, hopefully that was sufficient. Uh, if anybody does have more questions, go to pillarcatholic.com and uh, click the contact button. No, I'm kidding. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to milk that for all it's worth. Might as well do it. <laughs> okay, uh, next question. And uh, we'll, we'll let it, we'll, you know, pause for, I'm just kidding. We're not actually going to pause for 30 seconds. I was going to say, go refill your cup of coffee because uh, this might go, Ed might go off for a while. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Softball question though for you, Ed. So, uh, I at least know anybody who probably follows you on Twitter know that you um, did your dissertation on Freemasonry. I am super fascinated by this. I know I asked one of our Dyson priests here, uh, like how legit all of the, you know, fears about Freemasonry, all that stuff are. And he's basically like, yeah, they're all, they're all legit. Like in terms of, you know, demonic influence and all this sort of thing. Um, But it's like one of those sorted, you know, uh, at least in my experience, when the word Freemasonry comes into conversation, people either think, you know, crazy Catholic conspiracy theorist or Nicolas Cage, finding the U.S. founder's treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence, right? So what is, uh, what's the real story about Freemasonry and why are Freemasons bad news bears? And why uh, have they infiltrated everything? <laughs> You're very naughty, J.D. <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, within the sort of territory you've staked out there between <laughs> Nicolas Cage stealing the Declaration of Independence and... And what was the other? <laughs> oh, crazy Catholic conspiracy theorist. Crazy Catholic. I mean, it, that's a lot of ground. And I'll be honest Feel with you. Feel free to move the goalposts if needed. That's no, okay. I was going to say the thing is Freemasonry is a pretty big tent, actually. And there, there's room for everything under there. Um, I, I would, you know, I did. I wrote my I wrote my dissertation on, on Freemasons, specifically why it's a canonical crime and what kind of canonical crime it actually is to, for a Catholic to be a Freemason. And... You know, regarding stuff about uh, sort of overt plotting against the church and you know the sort of seditionary thing, a lot of that's rooted in in the sort of Italy of the Risorgimento and the Papal States and everything, and Masonic lodges uh, in in Italy acting as sort of you know terrorist cells in places against the authority of the church, temporal and spiritual. So that and you, you've seen um, that flare up in other parts of, uh, particularly in European countries where which are historically Catholic and historically sort of you know. Uh, to use another word that we, we hear a lot on Twitter these days, sort of integralist regimes where the church was uh, very closely aligned with the secular order. So, so you have seen that in history. In the mind of the church today, um, and certainly during the period of revision of the Code of Canon Law between the Second Vatican Council and the publication or the promulgation of the of the revised Code of Canon Law in 1983, the Church, along with considering all the other laws that were on the books in the previous Code of Canon Law and deciding how they wanted it to look, they had a special commission that looked at um, you know Book Six and uh, Penal Law, and they had uh, as part of that the consideration of the canons because there were multiple laws against Freemasonry in the old Code, and say, so, well, you know, do we need all of these? Do we want to do it? And actually what they did was they took the word Freemasonry out of the Code of Canon Law when they promulgated the 1983 Code of Canon Law. They said um, societies which plot against the church, uh, that's how they term them. And so everyone kind of, there was this sort of gray period where everyone was like, well, wait, they took the word Freemasonry out. Does that mean it's okay for a Catholic to be a Freemason? No. 
first of all, no. And there are a lot of good canon lawyers who can tell you no and have been saying no for a very long time, leading back to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in the 80s when asked this question, said, no, are you crazy? But what the church actually wanted to do in taking the word Freemasonry out of the code and taking the word Freemasonry particularly out of the penal law of the church was to say people were interpreting that word too narrowly. People were considering Freemasonry to be guys in funny aprons doing, you know, weird quasi-religious, you know, rites in in weird halls and stuff. And that's bad. But we don't want you to think that the things that are bad about Freemasonry are limited to stuff that looks like that. There's a lot else that Freemasonry does that's bad. And things that are like that, too, are also bad. So one of the things that was written, it was actually written by Cardinal Shaper, um, as part of the sort of code revision process was answering sort of these questions as they came up while they were redrafting the code. And he said, look, if, if Freemasonry doesn't appear to be like the monsters under the bed thing it was in the 19th century anymore, it's because they've won culturally already and specifically cited things like divorce culture, legal abortion, sexual licentiousness as part of the accepted culture of the world, um, secularism as you know the exclusion of the church from the public square and the inability of the church to have a voice of you know equal authority with other institutions in the, in the public square said so these are all basically masonic principles but if you don't think freemasons are you know plotting against it's because their values have already diffused through the whole of society that in a sense they've won this cultural war and so we're not concerned about people who are, you know, actually joining a Masonic Lodge. We're worried about people who are joining societies that are advancing what 100 years ago we would have said was a Masonic agenda, but today is just a secularist agenda. So I, I don't know if that quite answers the question. I mean, to be clear, there are also operative free Masonic Lodges in places like Italy that basically work as criminal syndicates, and, and that's bad too. But the church has spoken less about Masonry, quote unquote, not... Um, because they care less about masonry, quote unquote, but because the threat of Freemasonry has always been this sort of uh, crime against the faith, the sabotaging of the belief of the church as an institute of peerless moral authority, of spiritual wisdom, as the you know as the sacrament of salvation for the whole world. That this was the the sort of, if you like, the the original sin of Freemasonry was rejecting the spiritual authority of the church. Sorry, I didn't know, J.D., if you had something to add to that. Or if you just, like, uh, <clears throat> Ed talks about it so often that you're like, can the Freemasonry question be over? Actually, believe it or not, Ed and I almost never talk about Freemasonry. Wow, fascinating. Well, yeah, we, I mean, we it's, might be, it's... We might be, if, if, if I may be so bold, we might be one of the few... Uh, we might be rare these days in sort of the Catholic um, online universe in that we uh, we almost never talk uh, about Freemasonry, whereas for some, it is probably the the 80% of their conversation. Mm. You know, so I don't feel the need to talk about it too much because, you know, I, I I spent a sizable portion of my life researching it in every possible direction. And, you know, I kind of feel like I opened the can, I ate the whole thing. I'm good. Yeah, it doesn't need to infiltrate every conversation. Well, this, I mean, this is super interesting. I've never heard it characterized like that. I mean, because it, again, I'm, uh, neophyte of neophytes when it comes to like knowing the the nitty-gritty about freemasonry but I, other than i mean just like a morbid curiosity it's like i know that it was a big important thing and it's still something to look out for and all that sort of thing uh sure and to be clear there's a higher right liturgy and masonry that is explicitly anti-catholic and you know stamping on papal tiaras and stabbing skulls and you know all and renouncing the pope and all that stuff. i mean that's real that happens and that's very very bad but it's not the thing the church is mostly concerned about when it talks about Freemasonry. Right. What about the stonecutters, Ed? Could you say a word or two about the stonecutters? I'm I'm actually I, I can't discuss. <laughs> Sorry. I took I took a vow. They'd I'd have to be ritually disemboweled if I talked about it. Good enough. <laughs> uh that's good. Okay. What I am curious about, um I so I've heard um and again, it's like one of those things you never know what what's true, what's complete bupkis what's you know what's been infiltrating the true stories of of uh freemasonry right um but did i do that right <laughs> no uh but I've, I've heard like you know uh generational there's like all this talk of like generational curses and stuff like that my great great grandfather was a freemason and i am constipated or something like that it's like all these random stuff where it's like gone down there's like these generational vows or whatever like is stuff like that how much truth is there to that? Do you think like in terms of like the spiritual realm, the hook the devil can have on, you know, people, but then understanding that it's also the flesh and the devil in or the, the world, the flesh, in addition to the devil in terms of like the, uh, 
not to mention original sin that just like, you know, afflicts us today. I mean, how much, how much truth, uh, or is that, uh, too far afield from, from the question? No, it's, it's a real question. And, um, it's a both and I, so when I was writing my dissertation, I was obviously very keen to get my hands on Masonic stuff for research purposes. And I have a sort of occult section of my bookshelves in my office that is full of some of it, but people got to the point where they were sending Catholic, good Catholics will often, if like, you know, an uncle dies or something and they discover a shoebox full of Masonic gear and they go, Oh my God, I don't know what to do with this. They'll give it to their parish priest. Um, it got to the point where word had gotten out. This is what I was working on. And so parish priests were sending this stuff to me and um, I would basically, my, my rule was I would, keep books because it's research material and other stuff, you know, hardware, as it were, I would give to a friend of mine who's a priest who's also an exorcist and have mm -hmm. him dispose of it. And I, I tell this story not lightly. Um, I, I am aware of a number of priests, uh, including some trained exorcists, who have gone into houses for no purpose other than to meet with a person who is in distress. In one case, a recently bereaved widow went into the house and the priest crossed the threshold, stopped cold and said, I'm really sorry. Is there any chance your husband was a Freemason? And the wife had no idea, no idea. And then a week later found like the secret closet in the house, all the gear. Like, so I, there is a spiritual aspect to it, especially at some of the higher levels. I think in a lot of cases, it's something that is um, practiced thinking nothing of it, thinking of it as pantomime, thinking of it as a sort of elaborate anti-Catholic prank, um, a sort of, you know, mocking of spirituality rather than done with sincere intention. But the point, but uh, you know, you, there's, there is a way to open a door to the spiritual with this stuff and it's not to be played with. Um, it's not an aspect of Freemasonry that I tend to put front and center as a canon lawyer because I'm looking at it primarily as a, an act of heresy um, rather than anything else, but it, it is there. Um, I don't think it's something that many people who become involved in Freemasonry will encounter because, you know, this, this sort of, you know, the really dark, crazy, weird stuff that people think of when they think of Freemasonry, Masonic rites and stuff is a tiny, tiny minority of people who go to the very, very higher degrees and the vast majority of guys, like they barely get their foot in the door. Um, and sort of live it at like, you know, at the level of, they think of it as at the level of most people would consider like a Knights of Columbus Lodge. Like it's where the discount bar is in my County. And, you know, it's where everybody goes to hang out after work and our wives can't bother us. You know, it, like that's, that's kind of the entry point for a lot of people. Um, so I like to draw a distinction and I also like to draw a distinction between sort of that entry level experience that a lot of people have who won't ever see anything of the other weirder stuff. Um, but also masonry is very, very different in different countries. What you will encounter in a Freemasonic Lodge in Italy is radically different to what you will find in London, which is radically different to what you will find in Greenville, Pennsylvania. You know, that these these are not, you know, there's a common ethos there, which the church says is a universal one and is heretical. But beyond the ethos, there's a lot of difference between practice, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I know it's a fine line because, you know, to talk about this stuff is to risk glorifying evil, which, you know, evil has been and sensationalizing sort of it. And right. this is yeah. Yeah. sensationalizing it is, a, is, is really yeah. troubling. It's something that we do with so many things where we um, we 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 talk about the sensationalized evil of a demonic possession or um, a Masonic sort of plot to overthrow the church. And in a certain way, I think that the devil uses that kind of that that kind of talk to make us less attuned to the way in which the ordinary things of the, you know, of the world and the flesh are, um, are tempting us on a daily basis. So um, is a bigger danger in the church right now to um, Catholics who want to go to heaven, the ubiquity of pornography or a Masonic plot to, to assassinate the Pope? Well, I know which one seems to me to be um, prevailing right now, but we can sort of other the actions of Satan by concentrating so much on these extreme kind of things. Yeah. yeah. The banality is our greater danger. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I just had something that just flew right out my <clears throat> brain that I was going to uh, say in response to that. that happens so to us. That's, that's right. like 80% of our show is just things flying out of our brain and right. kind of just stutter around. That's right. Oh, I remember. Oh, yes. Uh, so my bishop here is friends with Father Gary Thomas, um, the priest who 
the right was loosely written af- after. Anyways, he was here and did a podcast interview with Bishop Daly a few years ago. And I remember being really struck by what he said, because it's like in that vein, everybody's like, ooh, the exorcist. And it's like, he's, you know, seeing all the spooky things. And one, he was like the most mild mannered guy ever, which I had like, I had met a couple of priests who were exorcists before. So I kind of knew that they were more reserved and like, they look for the guys who are more reserved. But uh, I remember being struck by how stark his answer was. It's like, if a person is, you know, being demonically possessed, oppressed, whatever, the best thing they can do is go to go to confession, live the virtues, uh, receive communion, all those things. It's like it's not like I have some you know secret exorcist tricks up my sleeve and all that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's not magic, right? The most yeah, powerful right. exorcism the church possesses is the Eucharist. That's right, right, which is on offer every day. Yeah, um, yep. awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for that uh, indulging me a little bit. Um, hopefully that was helpful for for the listeners. So that's all we have for our non patrons. Uh, but one other question, uh, bonus question. So if you want to. Uh, hear the <clears throat> highly sought after answer to our bonus question. Check us out at patreon.com slash the podcast or the podcast.locals.com. I don't know if that's even a thing or if people have heard of that. Anyways, bonus question for patrons uh, for each of you. Uh, excellent. Okay. Well, uh, as we close up, I realize we went a little long, but um, one more time. Where can people find you, uh, including on Twitter or anyplace else? I know Pillar is the, the main thing these days, but um, where else can people find you? PillarCatholic.com. Our podcast is The Pillar Podcast, and you can find it wherever fine podcasts are found and also where bad podcasts are found. But The Pillar Podcast is our podcast, www.pillarcatholic.com. Uh, Ed and I tend to do a fair number of things on the Twitters um, as well, and um, and those are some of the places where we are. Wonderful. J.D. Flynn and at J.D. Flynn and at put the record straight, Canon Lawyer Ed or Canon Lawyered. I, I would love for to be able to tell you it's Canon Lawyer Ed, but no, I'm afraid it was written and conceived as Canon Lawyered. It was a really it was a sophomore grad school joke. And I'm not I'm not going to die. It's what I did. I it's did like it. getting jammed, you know, in Parks and Rec when that exactly <laughs> yes. it's like you got jammed. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I if you would have had me if you would have asked me to bet on that, I would have not bet that. But that just makes it that much uh, more hilarious. Well, great. There you have it, everybody. At Canon Lawyered, that also happens to be the last the, the two letters of the first name. Well, yeah. Thank you guys for coming on. This is this is super awesome. Um, go check them out and uh, good luck with the pillars. Thanks Keep for great work. Pillar Catholic. Thanks Thanks so much. Yeah, this was awesome. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of the Popecast. If you're enjoying the show and haven't already, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review over at iTunes. It, of course, helps to make sure more folks can find and listen to the show. And then a special thanks again to our newest patrons, uh, Francisca and John. If you're a Popecast super fan and you aren't already and would like to support our work here to get early access to new episodes, and of course, as is the case with this episode, to get bonus content when we do interviews, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash thepopecast to get all of those great perks. Again, early access, asking questions on future shows, even a custom Popecast mug and t-shirt if you uh, at, at certain tiers. So again, that's patreon.com slash thepopecast. Thanks, as always, to our listeners, new and old, but especially those who have found us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. You can always catch us there in between new episodes at the Popecast for lots of other great stuff. Until next time. <laughs>